It's time for the What in the Podcast. It's the last leg of Route 66 this evening. Hope you enjoy our wrap-up. Welcome to episode 109 of What What in the the Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Mito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. I'm your host, Kent Whittington. As usual, here with me is my wife, Adriana Camito. Hi, dear. Hi there. How are you? Getting better slowly. Feeling better today? Yeah. <laughs> better than before. It's not one thing, it's another, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Uh, well, we're both feeling better today, so we're decided we're going to record. We're a little late recording. We should have recorded last night, um, but things got in the way. We actually, we were up yesterday after about a three and a half hour sleep the night before. Speak for yourself. I didn't get any sleep yesterday. Okay. Even from the night before. But either way, we were up a lot earlier than we should have been but to try and prepare for storm bomb whatever yeah yeah we had we had the super storm bomb. 2023 i guess mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it supposed to be heavy winds and rains which lots of heavy winds poor, poor little child got killed on true. wednesday that's the true. tree fell over and on a car and a little girl or a little boy or girl was killed so. yeah that's just that's sad that made me really sad yeah but what did we see on our end a lot of wind on wednesday a little bit of sporadic rain and then a lot more. We got drenched fin- finishing getting our sandbags. Yep. Yep. We bagged ourselves about six bags of sand to uh, to basically uh, create a small access way from our front porch to our stair. And it was all for naught because we didn't flood like we normally do when the, when the rains get heavy. I mean, we flooded, just not into the house. Like It never got up to the porch, actually. <laughs> so we got lucky. But, actually, it did Wednesday. But we did get wet. Yeah, getting the sandbags. Exactly. <laughs> but we made good use of the time that we had. We had everything, you know, we, we normally our errands will take us the entire day. We don't get home by the evening. We actually got done by noon. And that includes breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> At which point we ate and Adrian went upstairs and went back to bed. Because Adrian hadn't had any sleep. In which case, I also stayed up to my detriment so that she could get some sleep. By the time Adrian came downstairs to have dinner, I wasn't even having that at that point. I could barely stand. I was just so There was teeter-totter moments where he almost fell over. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So, so. The, the learned lesson here is that Kent needs his sleep regularly. When Adrian says, come lay down with me. I should lay down lay with Lay down with me. Yeah, I don't always do what I'm told. That's okay. Your mommy taught you better. Yeah. But my wife is a different story. Your mommy taught you better to listen to this, this, the, the voice of reason, and you don't always. Not where my wife's health is concerned. What about your own health? Again, where my wife's health is concerned, that comes first. Oh, my gosh. Because it's not I'm about married my to life, a martyr. it's about the wife. I'm married to a martyr. Happy wife, happy life. Oh, hush. <laughs> 
Anyway, we should also point out tonight that Tracy is not with us. Uh, she's got the the chillins that she watches on a regular basis. Um, For the whole weekend. Yep, the pygmies are at her house. And uh, our friend Harla, her father passed away this week also. So Tracy's spending time helping her get all of his affairs in order, notifying the family, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, wish them well. We offer our condolences because apparently uh, Harla's father is like Tracy's adopted daddy, mm -hmm. as it were. Yeah. Uh, we, Their other mother and father. Yeah, I mean, and after my after my family losing somebody so recently, I understand what that's like. So, um, so our hearts go out to them. We hope everything and is, your is uncle okay. Eddie. And my uncle wasn't the funeral this week. It was this week. Um, and apparently, it was a nice little funeral. Natalie's got a beautiful urn. Her urn is so her. Mm -hmm. It looks so. I mean, it just every time I see a picture of her. Mm -hmm. And Facebook keeps trying to get me to friend her. I was like, I didn't know her too well, but everybody, you know, it, that the urn just totally matches beautiful her. brown urn with gold butterflies on it's it. It's beautiful. Yep. Anyway, let's not get too modeling. We're here yes. to have some fun. We're here to have fun. Yep. Sorry, guys. So we stopped in Missouri. Uh, we were just about to hit St. Louis. So we're going to start there uh, with the Haunted Lemp Mansion in St. Louis. So said to be one of the 10 most haunted places in America. Like they all say, you know, the oh. Lemp Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri, continues to play host to the tragic Lemp family. Over the years, the mansion was transformed from the stately home of millionaires to office space, decaying into a rundown boarding house, and finally restored to its current state as a fine dinner theater, restaurant, and bed and breakfast. The Lemp family began with Johann Adam Lemp, who arrived in St. Louis from Eswidge, Germany in 1838 building a small grocery store at what is now Del Mar and Sixth Streets. He sold common household items and groceries and homemade beer. The light golden lager was a welcome change from the darker beers that were sold at the time. The recipe, handed down by his father, was so popular that just two years later, he gave up the grocery store and built a small brewery in 1840 at a point close to where the Gateway Arch stands today. So Lemp first sold his beer in a pub attached to the brewery, introducing St. Louis to its first lager. Before long, Lemp found that the brewery was too small to handle both production and storage and found a limestone cave south of the city limits. The cave, which was located at the present-day corner of Cherokee and De, De Minnell Place. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not from that area. I, don't, <laughs> I have trouble pronouncing it, but I'll do the best I can. So uh, it's on the corner of Cherokee and De Manil Place. Could be kept cool by chopping ice from the nearby Mississippi River and depositing it inside, providing perfect conditions for the lagering process to run its course. Lemp's Western Brewing Company continued to prosper and by the 1850s was one of the largest in the city. In 1858, the beer captured first place at the annual St. Louis Fair. A millionaire, by the time of his death, Adam Lemp died on August 25, 1862, and his son William began a major expansion of the brewery. He purchased a five-block area around the storage house on Cherokee above the lagering caves. In 1864, a new plant was completed at Cherokee Street and Carondelet Avenue. What is it with these names? No I'm clue. Not from the area. It has probably has to do with heritage of, of, of the people that started or founded the area. I'm sure it does. 
So, but continually expanding to meet the product demand, the brewery eventually covered five city blocks. Big this brewery. does not surprise you know. me. <coughs> Excuse me. By the 1870s, the Lemp family symbolized both wealth and power, as the Lemp Brewery controlled the St. Louis beer market, a position it maintained until Prohibition. Not bad. In 1868, Jacob Feichert, William Lemp's father-in-law, built a house a short distance from the Lemp Brewery. In 1876, William Lemp purchased it for his family, utilizing it as both a residence and an auxiliary office. While the home was already impressive, Lemp immediately began renovating and expanding the 33-room house into a Victorian showpiece. From the mansion, a tunnel was built from the basement through the caves to the brewery. When mechanical refrigeration became available, parts of the cave were converted for other purposes, including a natural auditorium and a theater. This underground oasis would later spawn a large concrete swimming pool with hot water piped in from the brewery boiling house. That's kind of cool. Yeah, multi-purpose. And a bowling alley on top of that, too. See, that's that's what we need today. Mm -hmm. Things that also use from nature, like the sun and everything else, mm -hmm. is, you know, repurposing things properly instead of, yeah, anyway. Okay. I'll yeah. keep my mouth shut. No, no, no. Well, no, I mean, I they, they didn't that, yeah. use it for refrigeration anymore, so they found other uses for it. I mean. And and pipe the hot water from the brewery. Yeah, they used the, the hot pool, water yeah. instead of just getting rid of it. <coughs> to heat the pool. To heat the pool. Yeah. That's, that's, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, Sorry. I'm... As far as the theater goes, at one time the theater was accessible by way of a spiral staircase from Cherokee Street, too. Cool. So lots of lots of different nifty ways nifty. in and out. Yeah. By the middle 1890s, the Lemp Brewery gained a national presence after introducing the popular Falstaff beer. Which oh, what? Is the Falstaff beer. Falstaff. Okay. Well, good. <laughs> I heard didn't hear Excuse you. me. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Though we were feeling better, everybody, we are still not completely 100%. It is not what in the podcast without somebody coughing. Anyway. And choking and sounding like they're dying. So they introduced the popular Falstaff beer, which is still brewed today by another company. The Lemp Western Brewery was the first brewer to establish coast-to-coast -coast distribution of its beer. At the same time, he was building his own business empire. William Sr. also helped Pabst, Anheuser, and Bush get started. So basically the father, father of modern beer basically, in the U.S. Yeah. In the midst of this success, the Lemp family experienced the first of many tragedies. When Frederick Lemp, William Sr.'s favorite son and heir apparent, died in 1901 at the age of 28. Oh, sad. Yeah. Frederick, who had never been in, in extremely good health, died of heart failure. At 28? At 28, yep. Man, what kind of genetic issues did he have? Well, it wasn't good health. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that well yeah but i mean did i have a heart attack at 28 i mean i'm pretty bad i had a heart attack at 36 but that's like rare and even then mm -hmm. sorry i don't know maybe it was more common or he was poisoned just mm -hmm. kidding nah. i was kidding in this case he was in bad health and his whole life yeah, yeah i know his heart probably just couldn't take it so the devastated william limp was never the same beginning a slow withdrawal he was rarely seen in public after his son's death. Sad. <coughs> On January 1st, 1904, <coughs> excuse me, William's closest friend, Frederick Pabst, also died, leaving William indifferent to the details of running the brewery. 
Though he still arrived at the office each day, he was nervous and unsettled. His physical and mental health began to decline, and on February 13, 1904, he shot himself in the head with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson. Oh, gosh. How horrible. Mm -hmm. In November of 1904, William Limp Jr. took over as the new president of the William J. Limp Brewing Company, inheriting the family business and a vast fortune. He and his wife Lillian began to spend the inheritance, filling the house with servants, the pair spent huge amounts of car on carriages, clothing, and art. There goes the money. <laughs> well, they got a fortune, though. Yeah, <coughs> you don't have a fortune if you keep doing stuff like that. That's true. <laughs> Lillian, though, was a beautiful woman who came from a wealthy family herself. She and William Lim Jr. had married in 1899, so there's probably a dowry involved, too. Yeah, but if you spend like that, it will, it will disappear. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they could afford it. But anyway, they were married in 1899, and William J. Lemp III was born on September 26, 1900. Before long, Lillian became known as the Lavender Lady because of her fondness for the color. Why are you laughing? I'm not. Oh, you're joking. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, join the club. In addition to her lavender attire and accessories, <coughs> oh, she me. went so far as to have her carriage horses harnessed. Uh, their, their harnesses dyed lavender also. In the beginning, Will enjoyed showing off his trophy wife, but Will was a player. Born with a silver spoon in his mouth, he was used to doing and acting as he pleased. Yeah, that's why I was when the rich get richer, I guess. When William began to tire of his beautiful wife, he demanded that she must spend her time shopping. Allotting her $1,000 a day, he gave her an ultimatum that if she didn't spend it, she would get no more. Keep the wife busy saying do what he wants to do is what it looks like here. In the meantime, Will was busy running the brewery during the day and pursuing all manner of decadent activities during the night, see? Holding lavish parties in the caves below the mansion, he would bring in numerous prostitutes for the entertainment of his friends. God. Enjoying the swimming pool, the bowling alley, and the free-flowing beer, his friends who attended these lavish events were known to enjoy a high time in the earth below. Will Shenanigans caught up with him when he sired a son with a woman other than his wife. Today, there's no official documentation that this boy existed. However, the rumors that this boy was hidden in the mansion attic for his entire life have been prevalent over the years. According to St. Louis historian Joe Gibbons, when he interviewed a former nanny and a chauffeur who worked at the mansion long ago, both of them verified that the boy did exist and was housed in the attic quarters that also housed the servants' rooms. Spawned from Will's philandering with either one of the many prostitutes or a mansion servant. I would think servant, actually. The boy's actually there in the house. Mom's probably there, prove the, Prostitute. Prove he's the daddy. Yeah. If he's a servant, yeah. So anyway, the boy, though, was born with Down syndrome. Total embarrassment to the family. The boy was hidden away from the world in order to cloak the limp's shame. Known today as the Monkey Face Boy, this unfortunate soul continues to show his presence at the Lep Mansion. Finally, William Jr., tired of his trophy wife, filed for divorce in 1908. Why she didn't take this step with all of his goings-on could be nothing more than a sign of the times. <coughs> Excuse me. The court proceedings surrounding the divorce became a major St. Louis scandal with all four St. Louis newspapers devoting extensive front-page coverage to the messy affair. The trial opened in February of 1909 to crowds that flocked to the courthouse each day to witness the drama of tales of violence, drunkenness, atheism, and cruelty. 
virtually ignoring William's decadent activities, Lillian almost lost custody of William Wimp III because of a photograph that was presented at the trial that showed her smoking a cigarette. A no-no back then. In the end, she retained custody of their son, but soon retired from the public eye. The only time that she was ever seen wearing anything other than lavender was on the final day of her divorce proceeding when she appeared entirely in black before the judge. When the well, it's the end of her, her marriage, so yeah. Yeah, but if she's tired of his bowl, maybe she should have worn white. Vindication, right? So, with the divorce, Will's troubles had only just begun. In 1906, nine of the large breweries in the St. Louis area had combined to form the Independent Breweries Company, creating fierce competition that the Limp Brewery had never faced. In the same year, Will's mother died of cancer on April 16th. Though the brewery's fortunes were continually declining, the Limp Mansion was entirely remodeled in 1911 and partially converted into offices for the brewery. At the same time, William allowed the company's equipment to deteriorate without keeping abreast of industry innovations. That's By, not good. Yeah, well, it's not good for him, for sure. That's a death knell for the company. Yep. By World War One, the brewery was just barely limping along. William soon built a country home on the Merrimack River, to which he increasingly retreated, and in 1915, he married a, for a second time to Ellie Lindbergh, the widowed daughter of the late St. Louis brewer Casper Kohler. The who whisperer? The one now? What did he say? What did you say? I said that, uh, well, I'll say it again. William soon built a country home on the Merrimack River. Not that River. part. Okay. Something whisperer, I heard. No, no. Casper Kohler. Casper Kohler. Okay, my hearing is bad. Go ahead. Yeah. He's, he's the St. Louis brewer. Brewer. Yep. Okay. My hearing is really, my ears are clogged. Sorry. Okay. Well, we're good to go. So let's continue here. Then Prohibition came along in 1919. The individual family members were already wealthy, so there was little incentive to keep the brewery afloat. For a time, Will hoped that Congress would repeal Prohibition, but finally gave up and closed the Lemp plant down without notice. The workers learned of the closing when they came to work one day and found the doors shut and the gates locked. That's messed up. That's a heck of a way to find you know, out though, your job. What? Prohibition kind of basically screwed all places like breweries, wineries. Places. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Unless they... Did Prohibition stop stop the sale of alcohol in the U.S., but could we still manufacture it and send it overseas during Prohibition? So I don't that's what I don't so. know. I don't know. I want to. I don't remember. I remember studying all this, but I can't remember mm -hmm. anything. So on March 20th of 1920, Elsa Lemp Wright, William's sister, the wealthiest heiress in St. Louis, shot herself just like her father had years before. Elsa was said to have been despondent over her rocky marriage. Um. Liquidating the assets of the plant and auctioning the buildings, William Jr. sold the famous Limp Falstaff logo to brewer Joseph uh, Grisadik for $25,000 in 1922. The brewery buildings were sold to the International Shoe Company for $588,000, a fraction of its estimated worth of $7 million in the years before Prohibition. So they lost a lot of money in that. The whole prohibition. Prohibition is how we ended up with the mom. The mom? Mob. Yeah, it sounded like you said mom. Sorry. See, your ears are clogged too. Yep. Uh, prohibition caught, you know, we got the mob from that, the mobsters. Mm -hmm. We've got um, like the gangsters. And then um, the we, women got the right to vote, but because of the prohibition add on 
to it. It screwed a lot of things. And you know, it didn't do anything. It actually, people ended up dying of drinking paint thinner. Seriously. A lot of things that happened because of prohibition. Oh, God. But anyway, after the end of the lips. Okay. Okay, one more thing. Go ahead. Well, the whole reason the women put the right on for getting the right to vote for prohibition was because women were dealing with husbands that would come home and beat them because they were drinking or they would do that, you know, this, that, you know. Public drunkenness. Pu- public like drunkenness. Yes. It was causing problems. Well, yeah, but prohibition isn't the end all cure. No. It caused more problems in the end is what I was saying. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so well, stop talking now. You know, and that's, that's true for a lot of other things, things that were prohibited for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. I mean, it created more, pro- more bad than good in a lot of cases. But anyway, after the end of the Lemps Brewing Dynasty, William Jr. slipped into a depression. Acting much like his father, he became increasingly nervous and erratic, shunning public life and often complaining of ill health. Neurosis. On December 29th of 1922, William shot himself. See, I did this. Yeah, you called it. Yeah, you put your you put the gun to the head. I'm not reading with him, by the way, just so you know. So he shot himself <laughs> in the heart with a 38 caliber revolver, Sorry. just like his father. That family, that's what, the father and, is it one or two sons that killed themselves and the daughter? Son killed himself, daughter killed himself. So one son, one daughter, and the father. Yeah. So that's three in the family that killed mm-hmm. themselves. There must have been some really deep-seated... No, maybe daughter, it was I'm sorry, sister. I'd have to go back and look, but I think it was his sister. Sister and the son yeah. Yeah. and the father all killed themselves. Is it Was it another son, too, or just the three no. of them? No, nope, just the three of them. So... So anyway, he also shot himself in the very same building where his father died 18 years before. Mm-hmm. This does not surprise me. William II took his life on the main level of the mansion, just inside the entrance to the left. At the time of his death, this room served as his office. He was interred in the family mausoleum at Bellefontaine Cemetery in the crypt just above his sister, Elsa. She's the one that killed herself? I, yeah. Okay. William's brothers, Charles and Edwin, had long ago left the family business, so with William Jr. gone, it seemed that the limp empire had finally ended. Edwin had entered into a life of seclusion at his estate in Kirkwood, Missouri, in 1911. Charles had never been involved in the brewery and had chosen to work in the banking and real estate fields instead. Uh Uh-oh. In 1943, yet another tragedy occurred when William William Limp III died of a heart attack at the age of 42. I bet you were thinking of uh, the crash, huh? Yeah. I don't know if that'll figure in. Let's find out. Sorry. Brother Charles eventually remodeled the mansion back into a residence and lived in the house along with two servants and the illegitimate child of his brother, William. Charles, too, became an odd figure as he grew older, developing a morbid fear of germs. His obsessive compulsive behavior included wearing gloves at all times to avoid bacteria and constantly washing his hands. It was during this time that William's illegitimate child, now in his 30s, died at the mansion. He was buried on the Lemp Cemetery plot with only a small flat marker with the word Lemp. Down syndrome. Back then, kids with Down syndrome almost never made it to 30. No. And socially, again, he was an embarrassment to the Lemp family. But he... Which way is sequestered away? What gets me is he wasn't these... treated as bad as all that if he lived to thirty, though. I what mean... gets me is all these people who seem to have mental health issues. The whole family after moving into the mansion. You think some kind of something in the paint, lead in the paint, or something? Or well, if I were to be to take it to the extreme, I, I could say it's a curse. 
I'd say it's genetics. It could be genetics, yes. I think I think it's genetics, especially since he ended up one of it. You can anybody can end up with a Down syndrome child, but yep. my point is, there are certain factors that can make it more prevalent. But anybody can do well, that. It gets better. Shortly after the Monkey Face Boy's death, Charles became the fourth member of the Lemp family to commit suicide. That's four. First, he shot his beloved Do Doberman Pinscher in the basement of the mansion. So technically five if you count the Doberman. Doberman didn't kill itself. It was killed. So that's murder. So that's four deaths by suicide and a murder to a dog. Okay, there we go. <laughs> then climbing the staircase to his room on the second floor, he shot himself. Charles was discovered on May 10th, 1949 by one of his staff, still holding a 38 caliber Army Colt revolver in his right hand. Though the dog was shot in the basement, he was found halfway up the stairs. Well, so he wasn't completely dead. Yeah, that or he dra dragged the dog's body halfway up the stairs after he shot it. I think after he shot it, maybe the dog dragged its body up the stairs trying to follow its master. Well, it's just a guess. That would be my guess. Yep. Of the limps, only Edwin Limp, who had long avoided the life that had turned so tragic for the rest of his family, remained. The banker? I believe so, yes. Mm-hmm. He was known as a quiet, reclusive man who had walked away from the Lemberry in 1913 to live a peaceful life on a secluded estate in Kirkwood, Missouri. Yeah, that's him. Edwin passed away quietly of natural causes at age 90 in 1970. So, like I said. Oh, no, that one died of heart attacks. All the others died of. Heart attacks. This. Of gunshot wounds. Out of all of them, only Edwin died of natural causes. And the son, the illegitimate son probably yeah. died of something. Well, he was 30 yeah, with Down he, syndrome, yeah. which means heart conditions, all sorts of things. Yeah. But I'm not counting that. And the fact that the others shot themselves in the mansion. Edwin was not in the mansion, died of natural causes. So maybe there is a curse. Or there's something wrong with the property. And the paint, like you said. Never know. So uh, according to Edwin's last wishes. His butler burned all the paintings the lamps had collected throughout his life, as well as priceless Lemp family documents and artifacts. These irreplaceable pieces of history vanished in the smoke of a bizarre bonfire. So maybe he was a little nuts. Who knows? The Lemp family line died out with him and his family's resting place. Oh, I'm sorry. The Lemp family line died out with him and the family's resting place can now be found in beautiful Bellefontaine Cemetery. After the death of Charles Lemp, the mansion was sold and turned into a boarding house. A boarding house? Yep. Oh, that poor mansion probably got destroyed. Along with the nearby, excuse me, along with the nearby neighborhood, the building began to deteriorate, and the haunting tales began. Residents complained of ghostly knocks and phantom footsteps being heard throughout the house. As these stories spread, tenants were hard to find. For the boarding house had it, ha, uh, the boarding house, and it continued to. I didn't sorry, hang on a second. Let me back up. As these stories spread, sorry folks, tenants were hard to find for the boarding house, and it continued to decline to a near flop house status. However, in 1979, the old mansion was saved when Dick Pointer and his family purchased it. Immediately they began to renovate the building, turning it into a restaurant and inn. Workers within the house often told stories of apparitions, strange sounds, vanishing tools, and a feeling of being watched. Frightened by the hauntings, many would leave the job site and never return. Since the restaurant opened, staff members have reported several strange experiences. Again, apparitions appear and then quickly vanish. Voices and sounds come from nowhere, and glasses will often lift off the bar, flying through the air by themselves. On other occasions, doors are said to lock and unlock by themselves. 
lights inexplicably turn on and off of their own free will, and the piano bar often plays when no one is near. Said to be haunted by several members of the Lemp family, there are three areas of the old mansion that have the most activity. The stairway, the attic, and what the staff refers to as the gates of hell in the basement. It is this area of the basement that used to be the entrance to the caves running below the mansion and the brewery. The attic is said to be haunted by William Jr.'s illegitimate son, referred to only as the monkey face boy. This poor soul, born with Down syndrome, spent his entire life locked in the attic of the Limp Mansion, as we said. Strange occurrences are often witnessed on this third floor level of the mansion. The face of the boy has regularly been seen from the streets peeking from the small windows of the mansion. Ghost investigators have often left toys in the middle of his room, drawing a circle around them to see if the objects have been moved. Consistently, when they return the next day, the toys are found in another location. In the, downtown, in the downstairs women's bathroom, which was once William Jr.'s personal domain and held the first freestanding shower in St. Louis, many women have reported a man peeking over the stall. Dirty bastard. <laughs> Sorry. On one such occasion, a woman emerged from the bathroom, returning to the bar, and stated to the two men she was there with, I hope you got an eyeful. However, the two men quickly denied ever having left the bar, for which the bartender verified this ghost is said to be that of womanizing William Jr. Yeah. In William Limp Jr.'s, I'm sorry, in William Limp Sr.'s room, guests have often reported hearing someone running up the stairs and kicking at the door. When William killed himself, William Jr. was known to have run up the stairs to his father's room and finding it locked, began to kick the door in to get to his father. Several years ago, a part-time <coughs> tour guide... Excuse me. That's all right. Part-time tour guide reported hearing the sounds of horses outside the room where William Lamp Sr. had kept his office. However, when the tour guide looked through the window, nothing was there. This area north of the mansion and now used as a parking lot was once utilized as a tethering lot for horses. The mansion's been featured in a number of magazine articles and newspapers and now attracts ghost hunters from around the country. Today, it features a bed and breakfast with rooms restored in period style, a restaurant featuring fine dining, and a mystery dinner theater. Tours are also available at the mansion. The Lamp Mansion is located at 3322 de Place, a short distance from the Mississippi River. To get there, take Broadway from Interstate 55 and follow that to Cherokee Street, go west to Ch on Cherokee, and turn right into Del Place. And that's everything on the Lamp Mansion. What's our next stop here? Jerome, Missouri. Okay. A tribute to the Trail of Tears. Uh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Jerome, Missouri is an unincorporated community located in Gasconda River. I think it's Gasconade. Gasconade River mm -hmm. in western Phelps County. I will try and remember that. With its relatively broad river valleys and an otherwise rugged region of the Ozark Mountains, this area was attractive to some pioneer immigrants in the 1820s and 1830s. However, the area remained sparsely settled until after the Civil War. In 1866, General John Charles Fremont gained control of the bankrupt Southwest Branch of the Union Pacific Railroad, which before the Civil War had been constructed west from St. Louis to Rolla. Fremont then began to resume construction to push the railroad westward. By 1867, the line had reached Arlington across the Gasconade? Yep. 
River from Jerome and construction began on a railroad bridge. That year, Thomas C. Harrison plated the town of Arlington along the new railroad on the east side of the Gasconade, while Fremont's associate, Willem F. Greeley, plated the Fremont town on the west side. Okay. Um, <laughs> as the railroad's western terminus, Fremont town enjoyed immediate and rapid growth, and the town site covered several acres centered around a large square where Greeley started constructing a massive stone hotel. Within two years, the town had a large population estimated at nearly 1,500 people. In 1869, however, construction on the rail line resumed under new owners. No longer a strategic transportation terminus, Fremont Town declined as quickly as it had risen. Its inhabitants deserted en masse, and Greeley's unfinished hotel lay abandoned. The Phelps County Court officially vacated the, the plat of Fremont Town and its additions in 1874. By that time, it sported only one store, a schoolhouse, and three sawmills. Its sister city, Arlington, across the river, fared somewhat better as a lumber shipping point with a post office and two stores. So one town survived and the other is dying. Kind of survived. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Though the town was all but abandoned, at some point its name was changed to Jerome. Lumbering on the region's dense forests of oak and pine provided both towns with a, at least some commerce in the late 19th century. The timber throughout the Gasconade and little piney drainages was harvested and floated downstream in immense rafts to Jerome and Arlington. The wood was milled into finished lumber and railroad ties then shipped out on the railroad. John F. Rucker and his son Booker Hall Rucker operated a lumber business in Jerome in the 1880s and 1890s, supplying the Missouri Pacific and the St. Louis and San Francisco railroads with cross ties Booker Rucker also served as Arlington's postmaster and ran a general store there in the 1890s. By the turn of the century, the area's timber resources were depleted. Though Arlington's post office continued to survive, by 1901, Jerome had only one occupied building remaining, the clubhouse of the Jerome Hunting and Fishing Club. Northwest of the Frisco Railroad Bridge, established by a group of St. Louis sportsmen, Though it did not last, this clubhouse proved to be a predictor of the future. Jerome and Arlington revived in the early 20th century as this stretch of the Gasconade River Valley became a favorite spot for fishing, boating, and outdoor recreation. After 38 years of being closed, Jerome's post office reopened in June 1910. At about the same time, automobiles were traveling the railroads, the roadways. Roadways. I can, I've never seen an automobile. I know, mean, neither have I. Yes, I have, actually. They have been on the, on I've the rail. Se I've seen the videos where they convert the wheels to railroad no, not wheels. That. And, I mean, they, they ship. How do you think they ship cars across the country? Yeah, on a train. Not they don't actually on, drive them on the yeah, track. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, I'm tired. I can tell. Please continue. Where did I leave off? Uh, let's see. After 38 years of being closed, Jerome's post office reopened. Automobiles were traveling the roadway, and, and Missouri State Highway 14 was created. Yep. In 1914, the St. Louis-San Francisco Railway operated a weekend-only train between St. Louis and the Gasconade River at Jerome called the Fisherman, and people arrived in great numbers to enjoy fishing, hunting, and other 
forts activities on the Gasconade and Big Piney Rivers. In about 1916, Sylvester J. Bryant established the Bryant Resort at Jerome, which within 10 years was reported to be one of the largest and most famous resorts in the Middle West. In 1923, two steel bridges were built on Highway 14, which linked Jerome and Arlington, one over the railroad bridge uh, across the Gasconade River and the other across the Little Piney River. In 1926, Missouri Highway 14 was made part of Route 66, which was paved by 1931. This dramatically increased travel and tourism in the area. Imagine I can imagine. Did, yeah. Yeah. No way to get there except by train and then suddenly, hey. Suddenly, hey, there's a bridge. No horse and buggy. We can drive. <laughs> As a, excuse me. As a result, Sylvester Bryant added nine more cottages to his complex at Jerome in the spring of 1926 to better accommodate the growing number of visitors. During the next summer, Bryant brought in the Bryant Jazz Orchestra, a dandy good orchestra which played in his new open-air pavilion every night after July 1st. Across the river in Arlington, Judge and Mrs. G.V. Randolph operated Piney View Cottages. They would open the 1927 summer season with 34 guests. Other residents served as fishing guides and provided both and tackle for vacationers. There are no remains of this resort today. Sounds like it was a pretty jumping place at the time, though. That's the other side of the river. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Sorry. I've lost my place again. This rapid expansion of the state road system and the corresponding increase in travel provided a tempting climate for entrepreneurs hoping to capitalize on the Empress precedent traffic and tourist dollar. These favorable conditions prompted a, a group of wealthy Rolla businessmen to join Lawrence W. Fitzpatrick, president of the St. Louis Construction Company, in an investment scheme to construct a toll bridge across the Gasconda River to link Route 66 with nearby resorts at Jerome while the Jerome Bridge was under construction. The state of Missouri made plans to designate a three-mile long stretch of road running from Route 66 across the new Jerome Bridge to the county line as a state highway. The four-span truss bridge measuring 126 feet long was completed in 1928. Unfortunately, this bridge was replaced with a nondescript bridge in 1997. By the time the village of Jerome had moved about a half a mile to the north on the west bank of the Gasconade River, the Jerome Bridge, its area resorts, and Route 66 were located to the south of the town of Jerome on what is now D Highway. The area was once referred to by locals as Tater Hollow. <laughs> yeah, so I gotta remember, we're in the Ozarks here. So, so where you at? I'm going Tater Hollow. <laughs> One of the most popular destinations on the Route 66 was Stony Dell Resort when it was built in 1932. It was part of Arlington because it was located on the east side of the Gasconade River near the old town. It is now within the jurisdiction of the town of Jerome. This complex was built, owned, and operated by George Pruitt and his son Vernon. Stonemasons by trade, the Pruitts along with their carpenter friend George Badger, began building this resort in the early 1930s. By the time it was complete, it boasted a spring-fed swimming pool, a two-story stone bathhouse, a restaurant, a service station, tennis courts, landscape gardens, picnic grounds, and several cabins, some made of stone and others constructed of wood. They rented for $1 to $2 a night. 
1935, the resort was described as Rolla Herald by the Rolla Herald as one of the beauty spots of the Phelps of Phelps County. Excuse me. It is best. Its best known feature was a hundred foot long rock swimming pool fed by an artesian well via a large stone fountain. Though the water was extremely cold, it didn't stop plenty of people from enjoying its waters. In fact, the resort became so popular that the police sometimes had to be called to direct traffic. The Tartesian Spring was so also sold. Spring water was also sold in the Stony Dell gift shop and and fed tanks in the restaurant where live fish were kept. After viewing the live fish, diners could select one of the one they wanted for dinner. Kind of like the lobster tank. tank. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. lob fish in a tank. What's that one taste? I don't know. Well. <laughs> I want that one. Eight stone cabins were built on a terraced hill overlooking the old highway. There were They were accessed by way of a flagstone path that led from the road and beneath the stone archway. A, a retaining wall and the archway were built uh, of native stone using a variety of textures and patterns. The remains of one of the cabins, the retaining wall, and the archway still stand. The Sony Dell swimming pool and park complex once stood on the south side of the road, while the cabins and the restaurants were on the north side. There are no remains of the park complex today. Sad. It sounded kind of neat to mm -hmm. look at. It would have mm -hmm. been really neat. Located at the base of the wooded hillside on the north side of the highway, a long building housed a restaurant, a curio shop called Granny's Vittles, and served as a trailways bus station in the 1930s. An ornamental fish pond constructed of random rubble stones <laughs> once stood on the west end of the building. Burned out today, its ruins are still visible. The old restaurant and bus station at the Stony Dell Resort are burned out in ruins today by Kathy Weiser Alexander. Hold on. Sorry, folks. That's the person who compiled these stories for us. Oh, Forgot to take that out. Sorry about that. Okay. Sorry. I, I didn't know what I was reading. I'm like, wait a minute, huh? Okay. The old restaurant and bus station at the Stony Dell Resort are burned out and in the ruins and in ruins today. Sorry. That's my fault. Don't worry about it. Keep going. I've lost track of where the heck I was. There. You see it? The old store. That's it. At Stony Dell Resort in Jerome, Missouri. The old. That's doubles. Okay, we're going to skip that part. The next door. Next door stood a couple of craftsman style buildings. One of, one of which was alternately called the Bear's Den. And the, what did you just do? Fix those errors so they wouldn't bother you anymore. You see where the mark it's is? jumped. Yeah, I see okay. it now. Go ahead. Bears Den and, and the Bushwhacker Rood, or is that supposed to be Road? Bushwhacker Rood Building. Rood Building. Okay. These buildings still stand with a sign advertising gas, food, bait, handmade gifts. In a large lot across from these buildings, also on the north side of the road, are the remains of four of eight small wood cabins that once stood there at the north end of the line. The largest of them is said to have been the Arlington Schoolhouse. Though deteriorating, the cabins continue to stand today. The River Resort was popular among the travelers of Route 66 and servicemen from nearby Fort Leonard Wood for decades. 
At one point, it was said to have been a favorite of old-time actress Mae West, who made several visits in addition to its facilities. The resort offered dancing, tennis, boating, fishing, and even justice of the peace. Ooh, let's get hitched. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. <laughs> Definitely. Put that over here. All right. <clears throat> like a little Lake Tahoe. Sure. Did you lose your place again? No, I did not. The River Resort is... Pop nope, yes, I did, I guess. <laughs> By 19... <laughs> I'm tired, and it is getting late okay. for me, okay? It's okay. By 1952, the Pruitts had sold the property from 1954 to 67. It was operated by Fred Whittinger. Widener. Widener. However, by the 1960s, it was showing signs of age and wear. In 1967, Stony Dell's swimming pool and park complex on the south side of Route 66 was torn down to accommodate I-44, and the resort closed its doors forever. Just about a half mile from the southwest was the popular Route 66 stop, variously called the... Happy Hill Restaurant and the Happy Hill Cafe, and the Honey and Hot Biscuits Cafe. This long, narrow building was once was built in 1945. In the 1950s, the restaurant was heralded in the newspapers as being delicious, as having delicious barbecued pork, beef, and ribs. Though it served customers along the highway for years, it eventually closed, and the building is in ruins today. Sad to hear all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Right next door to this old restaurant is a private residence that became known as Larry Baggett's Trail of Tears Memorial. Somewhere along the line, a man named Larry Baggett obtained this property intending to build a campground, but those plans were changed when his wife died. Sometime later, an old Cherokee Indian visited Larry, who he said looked to be about 150 years old. The old Indian told Baggett that his house was built on the Trail of Tears, and it was blocking the path. The Indian further conveyed how they were made to walk hundreds of miles and how the Cherokee had camped right near Larry's house. Before meeting the elderly Cherokee man, Larry had built a stone wall adjacent to his house, and the Indian told him to put stairs there because the spirits were unable to get over the wall. Well, Larry did just that. He built those stairs to nowhere, and when they were completed, the knocking stopped. Afterward, he built a tribute to the Trail of Tears that included a stone archway labeled Trail of Tears that sits between a statue of himself on one side and on the other water pouring out of a bucket in, on the other side. On the property, he built several stone walls, folk art statues, a wishing well, several rock gardens, and a sign that in, described the plight of American Indians who suffered along the Trail of Tears. His big stone house was constructed around three living trees. Baggert's memorial immediately attracted all kinds of attention and made him a local legend when the media focused on local curiosities and tourists sought out cultural oddities on Old Route 66. He was featured on several local stations as well as a documentary television, a documentary television in Great Britain. Televised, not television, televised, sorry. I can talk, really, I can. It's okay, we're almost there. I know, it's a long one. Mm -hmm. So is yours. Mr. Baggett passed away in 2003, and two years later, his shrine was sold. Until 2018, it stood empty. The structures deteriorating, and even the head of a self-portrait sculpture went missing. However, in 1917, Marie Ryanberg purchased the property to restore this attraction with help from local artist Chris Richardson and volunteers. 
The memorial was reopened in April 2018 under the new name, A Trail of Tears and Herbal Gardens. For Route 66 travelers, the historic sites of Route 66 are not actually located in present-day town of Jerome, but rather are located to the southwest on Highway D from Interstate 44. Travelers will take exit 172 and turn right on Missouri Highway D, and within less than a mile will come upon these Route 66 sites. Sounds pretty. I'd like to see it. Mm -hmm. See, but I've wanted to go through Route 66 forever. So, Well, the next stop on our trip is the Union, Missouri Haunting. <laughs> this Sorry. is actually a story by a man named Stephen Lachance that was printed in 2004. Do you believe in ghosts? I used to be like many of you. I was a true skeptic, a true disbeliever. That was me until three years ago. Now I do believe. I wish I didn't. It would be easier for me to sleep at night. Even now, three years later, I'm still woke up in the night by the memory of the screaming man, the child in pain, and the dark ghostly image that turned my world upside down and changed my beliefs forever. I do believe in ghosts. It was in May 2001. I needed desperately to find a place for myself and three children to live in Union, Missouri. Our lease was up at the apartment where we had lived for two years. I was a single father, and I was about to find myself and my children homeless. Like many, I had answered just about every ad in the newspaper for rentals. One evening, I received a call from this woman telling me about this house. She said it was a rather large old house that was in very good shape. She invited me to an open house, which was to be held at coming that coming Sunday. Sunday rolled around. I can't imagine the surprise when, we did, when my daughter and I rolled up in front of this large old white house. We walked in. The smell of cookies baking hit us immediately upon entering through the front door. To our surprise, we were standing in a living room with cherubs surrounding the tops of the walls all the way around the room. All the original woodwork was intact, and a large wooden pole ran to the ceiling, creating a divider which separated the living room from the family room. The house had two floors with three bedrooms and a large family kitchen with a mudroom that led to the back door. The upstairs bedrooms had a breezeway that could be accessed from all rooms. The basement had an old butcher shower and a fruit cellar. It was more house than we had ever imagined for the price and immediately made up for our made up our minds that we had to have it. Excuse me. Anyone who has lived in an apartment for two years with three children would understand our desperation. We had to have this house. We spoke with the landlady and she gave me an application to fill out. There were many people there looking at the house, so we knew we would have to, com to compete to be its tenants. I handed my application to the landlady. You understand the responsibility that comes with living in an old house such as this, she asked. Oh, yes, I understand. It's beautiful. I quickly replied, not really understanding to what I was agreeing to. Well, then, I'll get back to you, she quickly retorted, and was off to peddle her wares to another of the visiting house hunters. She was a strange old lady, and the way she showed the house wasn't in a real estate-type manner. She showed the house as if she were showing a museum. We felt like we were on one of the house tours given each year for charity. We often went by before the phone rang one a week. I'm sorry, a week went by before the phone rang one evening. It was the strange landlady, overly excited to tell me that she had selected me. 
my daughter and two sons to live in the old house. I was to meet her that following day at a restaurant to settle all of the paperwork and payment. I thought this was a little strange and I was a little disappointed because I couldn't wait to see the house that would now become our home. The papers were signed on the following day. That weekend was Memorial Weekend, and we were all set to move in. It seemed like years before Friday came that week, but we, but we were finally there. Moving day. The move was as normal as one and was a normal one, sorry. And before we knew it, all of our belongings were hidden safely inside the old White House. I was removing the last few items from the moving truck when a car slowed down, almost stopping in front of our new home. From the window of the, of the slow-moving car, the passenger said, Hope you get along okay here, and then sped up and drove away. What do you think of that, Dad? My puzzled daughter asked. Friendly neighbors, I suppose. I replied, I, I replied that as I shut the sliding door to the truck. The first night in the house went by without fanfare. Maybe because we were so tired from the move, or perhaps because the house wanted to draw us in a little closer before beginning its series of attacks and assaults upon me and my family. The next morning started like most any day, any other day, except I did notice one strange thing about the house. Each of the house's interior doors had an old-fashioned hook and eye latch, but not on the inside of each room's doors to keep someone out. The latches were on the outside of the room's doors as if to keep something in what is it dad my youngest son asked from behind oh nothing i replied and went about the business unpacking our things the first incident happened in the living room when i was hanging a large picture of two angels my daughter thought that this would complement the cherubs that surrounded the room i hung the picture and turned to walk away crash i turned to see that the picture had fallen to the floor Rehanging the picture once again, I turned away. Crash! The picture was once again on the floor. Hanging it for the third time, when I started walking away, I felt a rush of air and something hit the back of my ankles. What the hell? I turned to see the picture lying at my feet. More determined than ever, I hung the picture again and stated loudly, Stay there, damn it! I had to laugh because I was alone. Who did I think I was talking to? Kids were playing on the front porch. Dad, come and see this, my daughter's voice rang through the front door. I stepped out on the porch. Sit down and watch this, she said excitedly. Watch what, I replied. No sooner were the words out of my mouth when my daughter pointed to an old man walking down the sidewalk toward our house. However, when he reached our property line, he quickly crossed the street and continued his walk on the opposite sidewalk. They don't like walking in front of our house, Dad. Isn't that weird? My daughter, breathless with excitement, stated. And right she was. I sat on that front porch for a good three hours watching our neighbors cross the street away from our house anytime they walked along our street. A couple of times I motioned as if to say hello, but they just dropped their heads and continued on their way at a brisker pace. Maybe they're uncomfortable with my new with the new neighbors, I rationalized, trying to make sense of the senseless situation. We went inside for dinner and the rest of the night went normal without incident. Sunday, the kids came home from church, excited because we had set aside the whole day to work on our yard. This was a big deal for us because the only outside area our apartment provided was a front balcony. We mowed the grass and cleaned up the leaves from under the porch and in the front yard. Strangely enough, the trees seemed to be shedding their leaves as if it were fall. 
Strange tree behavior, I thought. I made a mental note to mention it to the landlady when I walked with her when I talked with her next. I asked my youngest son to go inside and bring out the garden hose from the basement so we could clean the walkways and wash down the weathered white of the house. A few moments passed when I heard him screaming from inside the house. Running frantically into the house, I found him standing in the kitchen shaking in the middle of a puddle of urine. What's wrong? What's happened? Looking at me with the, with the scared eyes of a child, he said, something chased me up the basement steps. What chased you? I asked, already thinking the overactive imagination of a little boy was at play here. I don't know, Daddy, but it was big. Me and my other two children checked the basement, but found nothing, except for the garden hose that had been dropped during his frightened escape. Let's get you cleaned up, I said. Naturally, there was teasing from my other two children about the proverbial basement monster. Better watch out when you go into the basement because the glare of my eye finished my middle boy's sentence. The rest of Sunday and Monday went without any other incident, and we were so happy those first few days in the house. My daughter was making plans about gardens, decorating, and my boys thought it would be easy to walk to their baseball games because the park was very close. It was a normal, happy time, which unfortunately did not last long. Monday came, the last week of school for my kids and a long week of work for me. Each day we would leave the house and return each evening to find every light in the house turned on. I blamed the children for leaving the lights on in the morning. However, on Friday, my daughter and I sent the boys to the car while we toured the house, making sure that every light was off. That night we returned home to again find every light burning. When I walked into the house, I was a little shaken there being no logical reason for all the lights being on other than there was someone in our house. Searching the house in a panic, I found nothing. Daddy, it's cold in here, my daughter stated from the living room. What was she talking about? Sweat was pouring down my back and across my brow. However, when I stepped in the living room, the temperature dropped a good 30 degrees. That was the first time I felt its presence. <coughs> Excuse me. I can't describe it to any better than it felt like an electrical current running through my body, bringing tears to my eyes and bumps into my arms. It passed quickly, I remember thinking. I remember thinking, what the hell was that? Soon my daughter stated, Daddy, it's getting warm in here. And sure enough, the temperature was rising as I watched the thermostat climb. That night, my children slept with me. What little sleep I got. <coughs> Excuse me. You get something to drink here. Sorry, folks. Sunday night, we were sitting in the living room talking. I was getting ready to take a trip the following morning to Indianapolis for work, and we were discussing their plans for a stay at Grandma's. The kids had their backs to the living room, for which I am still thankful because the memory of what happened next still haunts my dreams to this day. I noticed at first out of the corner of my eye, a quick glance something moving, standing at the kitchen doorway that led into the family room. Not something, someone. I looked toward it again. It was a dark figure of a man, even though there was full height. Full was, light. I'm sorry, even though there was full light. He was solid in form, except there was a moving, churning, dark gray, black smoke or mist that made up his form. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like anything we talking about? <laughs> 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 Sorry, folks. 
Is that something anything we've talked about before? Mm-hmm. Shadow figure or something? Mm-hmm. Yep. So anyway, I looked down because I was sure I wasn't seeing this and that my eyes were playing tricks on me. One or two good rationalizations and we could go on with our lives without incident. A few moments passed and I was sure that when I looked up again, that it would be gone. But he was still there and he began to move. Moving into the family room and pausing in the center of the room, his form was still a mass of churning, turning blackness. He stood there for what seemed an eternity, but in actuality, it was only a few moments, and then he melted into the air. Gone. I remember the thoughts that were racing through my head. I have two choices. We could run out of the house screaming into the night like those crazies you always see in the movies. You know, the ones the house... I'm sorry, you know the ones that uh, are always based on fact. Or the other choice, we could get up quietly, leave the house, and figure it all figure it all out. My hands were shaking uncontrollably. That's what we'll do. We'll go quietly, orderly, as if nothing was wrong. Standing up on shaky legs, I said in my calmest daddy voice, let's go get a soda and see Grandma. My youngest was instantly excited at the proposal of a soda before bed, and the older... Two looked at me as if I lost my mind. <laughs> Come on, guys. It'll be fun. Thank God my car keys were on the coffee table in front of us. We moved orderly out the front door, and I turned to lock the doors when a loud, painful scream of a man came from inside the house. It sounded as if he was screaming in pain, so loud that it could be heard throughout the neighborhood. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm sorry, folks. We're doing our best here, despite the fact that we seem to still be sick. That's what we do for our art. So anyway, it sounded as if he was screaming in pain, so loud that it could be heard throughout the neighborhood, and the dogs began to bark. To hell with orderly. Get in the car, I screamed to my children. At a dead run, we headed to the car and to drive to my mom's house which is still a blur to this day. I was in a panic, and I knew that we had to get away from the old White House. But before we were away from the neighborhood, my youngest son, in a very scared voice, said, Daddy, the basement monster is standing in the stairs up, in the upstairs window. I looked back, and sure enough, the black form was standing in the window watching us leave. That night, we stayed at my parents' house. Early the next day, I gathered my things and left for my business trip. I had a whole week of rationalizations by the time I returned home to pick up my children. Where else were we to go? I put everything I had saved and then summoned to the move. We had no other choice but to go back to the big old White House. Besides, after a week of talking myself out of the events of that night, I was ready to return. So on Friday night, we returned to the house. The weekend went by without incident, though we got very little sleep. I was taking another extended weekend to make up for, to my kids for my week away. On Saturday, we explored the big shed at the back of the yard, and in it, we found a number of personal belongings that appeared to belong to different people. My parents convinced me that maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to call the strange old landlady and ask her some straightforward questions about the house. You think at this point? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was to be one of the most awkward and strangest phone calls of my life. Once I was able to reach her, I carefully chose my words and asked in a normal voice if any of the previous tenants had ever mentioned a ghost. 
Well, of course, she said at first that she could not remember. However, she went on to say that one female tenant had claimed that her dead father came to visit her, but the old woman always thought she was crazy. The landlady said that some of the stuff in the shed had been left behind by the girl, but she couldn't get her to come pick it up. The other stuff in the shed evidently belonged to the man who had lived there, but left in the middle of the night, leaving behind his things. But no, she'd never heard of anyone talking about the house being haunted. I asked her how long ago did these people live there, and she said, not much more than a year, honey. Why do you ask? The phone call wasn't much help, and I didn't call, and it didn't calm my fears much, but what else could I do? The rest of the long weekend came and went. I actually had convinced myself that it was just a one-time ordeal because nothing more was happening. That was until Monday night. I was on the phone with my mom. The kids were off playing in my bedroom, which was located on the first floor. While on the phone, I began to hear the inside doors rattling. Listening closely, they rattled again and I yelled at the kids to quit playing games. I told my mom that evening was, or that everything was okay. Just the kids playing tricks. The rattle again. The rattle happened again. This time harder. So I scolded the children this time louder to uh, louder than before to behave and stop playing tricks. At this time, they rattled louder. But before I could scold, my daughter's scared voice cut me off. Daddy, I'm in. I'm in here reading, and my brothers are asleep. Excuse me, folks. <coughs> One more. Now, I'll try to recreate what happened next to the best of my memory. Some of it I remember clearly. Other parts are a blur to this day. Just as soon as I heard my daughter, the temperature in the house instantly dropped a good 30 degrees. With it came the feeling of the electrical charge running through my body. Along with its energy, a horrible stench that I cannot describe permeated the room. And then the screaming started. Softly at first, but building in momentum. I yelled through the phone of my mother to come help. We were getting out. Then the whole house began to shake and come alive. From above, I could hear something large coming down the stairs. Boom, boom, boom. The screaming of the man over and over. The screaming of my daughter. Daddy, what's happening? Along with this came the thought that one of my two bedroom doors connected to the stairs. Boom, boom. It was coming down those stairs. I had to get to my children. The whole house was alive with noise. The floor beneath me was shaking as I made my way to the bedroom door. I felt something behind me, and I knew I didn't want to turn around to see it. Boom! Screaming! A new scream mixed with the man's scream. This one from a child. Boom! Screams. Boom! I made it to my bedroom door, but it wouldn't open. By this time, I too am screaming. Throwing myself against the door, it still wouldn't budge. I continued to throw myself against the door again and again until it finally slammed open. My daughter was in shock by this point. I instructed my middle son to grab his brother and run out the front door and head for the car. Boom! Boom! Screams! My daughter won't move, and I finally had to slap her to bring her to life. Finally responding, I grab her and head for the door as I hear the other bedroom door slam open behind us. It was on our tail. And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't let it reach us. The whole house still shaking and alive with noise and something big on our heels. When we reached the front door and out onto the porch, 
I slammed the front door behind us. As we got into the car, we could still hear the noise coming from the house. I drove away and parked at the top of the street where I could still see the house and wait for my parents to arrive. We could see it searching through the house, searching, searching for us. It's blackness moving from room to room methodically. That was our last night in the house. My children never returned. When I returned to get a few of our things on several occasions, I never went alone. Everyone I brought into the house with me would also witness something happen. A scream, whispers, pounding from the floor above. It was not selective anymore at who it let hear its fury. I remember what the old lady said to me as I turned as I turned over the key. Standing there, the whole side of my arm and torso still bruised from throwing myself against the bedroom door, she said, Some people are meant to live in an old house like that, and some people aren't. I never thought you were the old house type, and I guess she was right about that. About a month after moving out of the old house, a friend sent me a website address uh, that she wanted to desperate she wanted me desperately to see. Put John T. Crow Union, Missouri, into your search engine, she said. When I did, the face of a man came into my screen. The same face that showed up in a picture my brother took in the fruit cellar one afternoon while I was packing for the move. The man was famous, the land itself famous, with a history dating back to the Civil War. About a year ago, someone I know saw a police car race up to that house one night and witnessed a family running out of its front door in their nightclothes. <clears throat> As for the house today, the old lady turned it into a dog kennel this past fall. I guess she ran out of people that could live in an old white house like that one. You see, I do believe in ghosts. I still drive past those house. I'm sorry, I still drive past that house every once in a while. And when I get enough nerve, I look up at this upstairs window and it's there watching, waiting, angry. Sometimes it screams still wake me up from my sleep. It's infectious scream creeping into my dreams, turning them into nightmares. I still don't sleep very well. In my dreams, I see a faceless man standing in that basement, washing away blood from his naked, blood-covered body, grunting, panting, breathing. The breathing you'd hear when you were alone with it in a room. The breathing you would hear when you knew it was there. Heavy, labored breathing. Yes, I do believe in ghosts. I do believe in ghosts, and maybe you should too. What do you think of that one? Creepy. Yeah. Why don't they make movies like that? They try, but they don't. It doesn't. It's not as scary. It's all in the telling. It's all in how. Yeah. You know, some movies are scary like that, just not. Some are. Mm -hmm. Most are. Yeah. I'd love to see a good ghost story. Everything on uh, the horror aspects of everything is always slasher, it seems. Well, there's nothing wrong with a good slasher flick. If it's in the right context. But you're talking more psychological stuff. Good psychological horror here, where you like uh, that the like ghost story. Yeah, or the haunting. The haunting. You're not the original haunting. The original you're never haunting. quite yes, sure. I'm talking about the original. Yeah, the original haunting. You're like never quite sure. Yep. <laughs> I've so, seen that like a hundred times. So you ready to take us to the next stop? I think so. We'll okay. see. <laughs> I, I promise nothing. <laughs> you're such a help. It's our last stop in Missouri. Come on. I know. Anyway. Wilson Creek, Missouri, and the Bloody Hill Ghosts. 
the Battle of Wilson's Creek, Missouri, also known as the Battle of Oak Hills, and Battle of Springfield was the first major battle of the Trans-Mississippi Theater of the Civil War. It was fought on August 10, 1861, in the officially neutral state of Missouri. However, its pro-South governor, Claiborne Fox Jackson, secretly collaborated with Confederate troops. Ooh, bad boy. Or good boy, it depends on your side. <laughs> <clears throat> on August 9th, 1861, Brigadier General Nathaniel Lyons' Union troops were camped at Springfield, Missouri, under the command of Brigadier General Ben McCullough, a large Confederate force was quickly approaching, making camp at Wilson's Creek about 12 miles southwest of Springfield. Both sides spent the evening formulating plans to attack the other the following day. The Battle of Wilson's Creek, fought on August 10, 1861, was a bitter struggle for control of Missouri in the Civil War's first year. In fact, it was the first major battle in the West and only the second major battle of the Civil War. Uh, the first one would be um, Fort Sumner? I think so. I'm think, not sure, though. I don't remember. It was one of the early battles. Mm -hmm. At about 5 a.m. on the 10th, Lyon, in two columns commanded by himself and Colonel Franz Siegel, attacked the Confederates on Wilson's Creek, and the rebel cavalry fell back from what would, have, would become known as Bloody Hill. However... The Confederate forces soon rushed up and stabilized their positions, attacking the Union forces three times, but falling, failing to break through the Union line. I can talk, really, I can. Lyon became the first Union general killed in combat during the battle, and Major Samuel D. Sturgis replaced him. Following the third Confederate attack, which ended at about 11 a.m., the Confederates withdrew. However, Sturgis realized that his men were exhausted and his ammunition was low, so he ordered a retreat to Springfield. The Confederates were too disorganized and ill-equipped to pursue. The Confederates' victory buoyed Southern sympathizers in Missouri and served as a springboard for a bold thrust north that carried the Missouri State Guard as far as Lexington. Carried, excuse me, not carries, carried. The most significant 1861 battle. Hold up. What? I've lost my... Wilson's Creek. You forgot to mention where. What? Wilson's Creek. Where am I? The most significant 1861 battle in Missouri. You just forgot to mention the place. That's all. Oh. Wilson's Creek. The, okay. Yeah. Sorry. I <laughs> see what go. I did. You got it now. However, the loss was substantial with 1,317 Union and 1,222 Confederate casualties killed, wounded, or captured. The Battle of Wilson's Creek marked the beginning of the Civil War in Missouri. For the next three and a half years, the state was the scene of savage and fierce fighting, mostly guerrilla warfare with small bands of mounted riders destroying anything military or civilian that could aid the enemy. By the time the conflict ended in the spring of 1865, Missouri was witnessed, had witnessed so many battles and skirmishes that it ranks as the third most fought over state in the nation. Okay. Today, the restless spirits of war-torn Missouri still haunt Bloody Hill. While visiting the site of the old battleground, many have reported seeing the ghostly apparitions of these long-ago soldiers, 
hearing noises that can only be described as guns and cannons, cold spots bearing no earthly explanation, and it, at night the sounds of soldiers walking and talking in the nearby woods. Interestingly, more Confederate soldiers are reported as being seen at this site than their opponent Union troops. Recognized and maintained by the National Park Service as a national battlefield, today the nearly pristine landscape allows visitors to experience one of the nation's best-preserved battlefields. Wilson's Creek is a must-stop for history buffs, com complete with a visitor center and museum, a research library, living history programs, a self-guided auto tour, and interpretive hiking trails. Goodness. And that's it, yeah. And there we, we, we're starting to leave Missouri. Yep, on our <laughs> way to Illinois. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. Okay, our first stop is going to actually be the Windy City itself, Chicago. We're going to talk about a story by Marion Helmet. Sorry, Helmer. Hi, Merle. I'll get it right yet. <laughs> it's Chicago's flapper ghosts of the Roaring Twenties. Sorry, Marlon. <laughs> anyway, brassy tunes and the din of clinking glasses fill the air of a steamy 1920 Chicago, Illinois ballroom. Faces streak in and out of view in a sea of bodies washed over with Charleston, the black bottom, and the shimmy. Amid them, the rosy-cheeked complexion of a young 20-something flapper girl is glimpsed as she strides into the night, past bristling guards shoving a dapper man out of the front door. Her beauty leaves an impression in the dimness of the street lamps. Smooth features, bobbed brunette hair, and an extravagant flapper dress are keen attributes as she rounds the corner. She vanishes into obscurity, giving one backward glance before hitching a ride down to Plain Avenue, in the clamoring automobile or so the imagery surrounding the legendary flapper ghost of chicago would lead us to believe in our most fantastical imaginings beyond the veil in 18 at 1800 south harlem avenue our fabled flapper is reported to re-enter the scene that's jewish walden cemetery in suburban forest park or stated stomping grounds for a century of spotty sightings to follow of course, by now, our fair lady is quite dead, a legendary regional ghost of Chicago. Yet, like many legendary specters from a romanticized time and place, the flapper ghost story takes a nearly formulaic narrative turn. Consider the account documented by Troy Taylor, author of Haunted Illinois, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Prairie State and the owner of PrairieGhosts.com. He states this fetching phantom, has been known to hitch rides onto Plain Avenue and most often has been seen near the cemetery gates. In the years before World War II, she was often reported at the Melody Mill Ballroom where she would dance with young men and often ask for a ride home. After they drove her to the cemetery, the girl would explain that she lived in the caretaker's house, since demolished, and then get out of the car. Often, with her admirers in pursuit, she would then run out into the cemetery and vanish among the tombstones. The notion of a hitchhiking flapper ghost is romantic and rich with nearly unmistakable urban legend motifs. 
ignoring the notion of a hitchhiking flabber ghost in America's most infamous city for gangsters, speakeasies, and all-around 1920s tomfoolery is admittedly difficult. Not to mention it clearly mirrors the vanishing hitchhiker urban legend quite closely, which certainly should not be undermined. In short, it has the earmarking of a regional urban legend that varies depending on the teller, much like the, uh, the Resurrection Mary stories. Nonetheless, there's a second set of speculation that is easier to ignore for unmovable skeptics in the case of the Flapper Ghost, that the reports surrounding her could indeed be based on some truth. So, in weighing the options, could the behavior of the alleged Flapper Ghost give us a glimpse into her possible origins? There are essentially two paths to take here. On the one hand, we can think of her as an archetypal picture of the Roaring Twenties, and thus a nice addition to a rich cultural heritage. The inherent spooky qualities certainly help to spread the story, and in this scenario, the origins of the Flapper Ghost are just that, a story or urban legend. For many, the tale ends here. Then, of course, there's the path less traveled, the path that 32% of Americans take is reported by Gallup in 2005. Indeed, that is the 32% of Americans that believe in the existence of ghosts. A reported belief by nearly one-third of the population is hard to slough off in any situation. And while certainly the number of people who would believe in a hitchhiking ghost offhand is probably fewer, the case is still worth some examination. Then we'll get into some of the eyewitness accounts here and, uh, and the origin. For 32 percenters out there attempting to trace the flapper ghost origins, prevailing theories on the nature of ghosts reveal a few basic assumptions that are employable. Ghost theory often states that earthbound spirits emulate an impactful life. Sorry, they emulate an impactful life event from beyond the grave or even the very moment of death itself. In so doing, they often resemble a moment in... Sorry, bad sentence structure. Let me try that again. In so doing, they often resemble a moment in time where they either died or experienced a life-altering event. They are sometimes theorized to emulate those moments in the rare instance that they become full-bodied apparitions and materialize. There's a ring of rationality there that if you accepted the assumption that ghosts exist at all, and if someone died in a way or experienced something so traumatic that it prevented them from moving on to the other side, they might reassume that moment in their trapped state. The theory is so ingrained in the ghost community after weighing the evidence and accepting the assumptions, not much more needs to be said on this side of the debate. The conclusion, given the above logic, would thus be that this young woman met an untimely death, probably after a night at the ballroom in her fabled flapper dress, and thus, when seen today as an apparition, reassumes that form. That is, of course, speculation and one's gut instinct when considering the nature of the sightings. Yet by sifting through the handful of documented eyewitness accounts of the Flapper Ghost, another story quickly emerges. According to Taylor, the Flapper Ghost was most active during the Century of Progress exhibition in 1933, in the years leading up to World War II, and again in 1973. In this case, Taylor places her possible point of origins as a Melody Mill regular that eventually died of parent peritonitis, the result of a burst appendix. As legend has it, the same girl was buried at Jewish Waldheim, which then brings the point of origin full circle. Under this account, our fabled flapper in the 
excuse me, in the fantastical lead of this art article, was actually driving off to the safety of her home until at last a, me a medical malady claimed her. In the end, if this is her accepted point of origin, we can only assume her restless spirit returns to spend time with the living in a place she was happiest. That's which is a comforting idea that uh, kind of goes cross current given your usual horror ghost story. Upon her passing, staff members at Melody Mill reported seeing the young woman in the ballroom. Taylor writes, a number of men actually claimed to have met the girl there after her death and offered her a ride home. During the journey, the young woman always vanished. During the Century of Progress in 1933, she was again active at the ballroom in much the manner explained above. One account relayed by Taylor even places a young man back at the caretaker's house the day after his initial encounter with the mysterious woman. He'd become infatuated with her, writes Taylor, and hoped to take her dancing again when he, another evening. His questions to the occupants of the house were met with blank stares and bafflement. No such girl lived or had ever lived at the, at the house. Based on the timeline, we can naturally assume that this was before the caretaker's house was demolished. Other accounts by Taylor include a daytime sighting in the early 1970s by a family visiting the cemetery. In this account, the family reported seeing a woman dressed like a flapper disappearing as she walked toward a crypt. Following the destruction of the Melody Mill, after it was closed in 1985, the accounts had generally fizzled out. Perhaps, as Taylor put it, because the spirit had moved on following the removal of her main haunt. Uh, tangled in the story of our flapper ghosts are two other legendary hitchhiking ghosts native to Chicago. Resurrection Mary, which I already mentioned, and the vanishing little girl on the CTA bus in Evergreen Park. Each surely fits into the same puzzle, or should at least be mentioned in the same story, given their obvious affinities and the general tendency of storytelling to spur offshoots with time. Chicago Haunts Ghost Lore of the Windy City by Ursula Belsky places the sightings of Resurrection Mary at the intersection of Klein and Fifth Avenue near the, the Calumet River. By this account, she's often seen as a woman in white, yet another obvious motif for or archetype that is hard to ignore. According to Adam Seltzer in The Ghosts of Chicago, the Windy City's most famous haunts, the little girl reported on CTA buses in suburban Evergreen Park is usually glimpsed around 95th Street. With more than the legendary vanishing hitchhiker in the region, one must stop and wonder whether these cases are related, the same, or well-ingrained motifs in local ghost lore. Fortunately, there are some major differences to consider that separate the accounts, either proving that any proving that the story de deviated at some point into separate paths or they were indeed separate occurrences from the start. So let's first consider the general description of Resurrection Mary in the words of Seltzer and Search of Similarities and Differences. He stated, Some have described giving Mary a ride home, only to have her jump from the car and run up to the gates of the cemetery and vanish. But more often, she said to vanish out of the car altogether, leading the confused driver to run into the nearby tavern, Chet Melody's Lounge, to tell his story. Later on in the footnotes of the same passage, Seltzer reveals another interesting anecdote about our flapper. The flapper is usually said to look for rides at the old Melody Mill Club, but my investigation indicates that the Waldheim flapper and the Melody Mill hitchhiker probably weren't the same ghost. 
Surviving accounts of the Melody Mill story say their hitchhiker went to Woodlawn Cemetery, not Waldheim. With all the cases on the table, it's a lot to digest. Clearly, multiple stories are happening at once under different names. And then even within the established cases of the Flapper Girl and Resurrection Mary, there are yet more variants to untangle. At the end of the day, there are enough inherent similarities between the Waldheim ghost, the Woodlawn Cemetery ghost, and Resurrection Mary that ignoring them would be negligible. Yet the differences, vanishing from the car versus running up to the graveyard, Mary versus the flapper, deviations in where they are picked up, Mary versus CTA versus flapper, taking drivers to Waldheim versus Woodlawn, which is variants of the flapper also, and also physical descriptions of a brunette flapper girl versus a sometimes blonde woman in white are also hard to discount. Seltzer does throw the same caution to the wind, noticing the obvious folkloric undercurrents by pointing to a 1942 California Folklore Quarterly article written by Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey, excuse me, Hankey that identifies the central motifs and variations to the vanishing hitchhiker narrative. Here he's speaking to Resurrection Mary and ultimately admits that she doesn't fit into these categories very well. In all instances, there is enough evidence drawing the accounts together and pulling them apart that it's easy <laughs> to argue on either side of the fence. Certainly a short article is no place to weigh all the evidence as there are enough accounts and evidence to fill dozens of books on the subject, which others well-versed on the subject certainly have, of course. Nonetheless, the story are each compelling enough to last the test of time and continue along thanks to the right mix of occasional eyewitness testimony, historical testimony, and a general creep factor to say to stay relevant when discussing Chicago ghosts. Now, the Roaring Twenties, let me try that again, the Roaring Twenties are earmarked by tumultuous cultural change and the shedding of generations, old moral and cultural norms in the aftershock of World War I. Uh, with our men-at-arms coming home in lockstep with war-hardened women in stride, the bright young things of the 1920s left a searing mark on the collective memory of America as their dress, customs, wild appetite for partying, and blatant disregard for general stereotypes shattered and imposed boundaries to pieces. Perhaps in the end, this helps to explain the continued interest surrounding the flapper ghost and the mystery that defines her. So what do you take from all that, dear? Um, it was, it was pretty wordy. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's included in this just because it is about the flapper ghosts, resurrection, Mary and all that other stuff. So it basically, it's a Chicago. Every area folklore. has a resurrection Mary story though. Every area does. Every yeah. area does just all, almost every, I almost, it, they don't always call it resurrection Mary, but it's similar. Hitchhiking, Hitchhiking ghost, girl whatever, yeah. or girl need ask for a ride home and the then CT, disappears, disappears girl, or yeah. goes to a cemetery or goes to a house and the girl's dead or whatever, you know, it, all that's lore there. So. Right. Right. <clears throat> Do you think there's any truth to any of it? I don't know. Maybe we should check it and see if Nat's ever seen anything. <laughs> When she was home, she is a Chicago girl. Our friend Natalia is uh, born and bred Chicago girl. Born and bred Chicago girl. She might know something about the story. We'll have to ask her. Ask her and check back. Maybe we can get her on the show if she knows anything. She doesn't like talking to people. I realize that she won't do it. I know. <laughs> it would be cool if we could get her to do it, but we're not going to try and force her into. Maybe I can do a secret recording where she. No, know. you will not do that. Of course, I wouldn't do that. That would be unethical and cruel. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> you want to do the next one? 
No, but I'll do it anyway. Hey, no. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> One down, four to go. Something like that. Just a couple more stops and we're on our way back home. Yep. Okay. Oh, you'll like this one, Ashley. Okay. It involves one of your favorite presidents, Abraham Lincoln. One of my favorite presidents? You like the stories about Abraham Lincoln's ghost. I like because he was there was supernatural, a lot of stuff with his wife. There's a lot of paranormal stuff in, in him yep. and his and wife and I, his family. And and as I remember, one of your historical essays in college was actually about his life. Hey, I got an A. I got an A on that. Don't, yes, don't knock did. it. Yes, you did. I re we researched it. You helped me research it and everything. Yep. So. All right. On to the show. <laughs> We're on the show. Just Let's start continue talking. the show. Sorry. <laughs> Ghosts of historic Springfield, Illinois. Like many historic cities, especially one called home to Abraham Lincoln for years, continues to play host to several unearthly spirits. Who continues? Springfield, Illinois. Thank you. You forgot to say it all completely. I already had said it. People are going to know. It's like beating a dead horse. Okay. The ghost of Abraham Lincoln. While several spirits are said to haunt this historic town, the most famous is that of Abraham Lincoln himself. Lincoln himself. I've got to stop running words together. According to over a century of legends, Lincoln continued to lurk around his tomb, now a historic site in Springfield. Is he even still buried there? Never mind. That's another... His tomb's there. That's all I can okay. tell you. Well... No, I remember his kidnapping, so, sorry. True, the body was kidnapped. <laughs> Randomness, everybody, sorry. <laughs> now a state historic site in Springfield, his tomb is. Sighting of the former president has been told almost since his body arrived in Springfield on May 3rd, 1865. After laying in state at the Capitol for a night, the body was placed in a receiving vault at Oak Ridge, Cemetery. In December, Lincoln's remains were removed to a temporary vault not far from a new proposed memorial site. In 1871, three years after laborers had begun constructing the permanent tomb, the body of Lincoln and those of the three youngest of his sons were placed in crypts in the unfinished structure. The construction of the permanent tomb lasted for years, and it was at this time that the first sighting of a spectral Abraham Lincoln was reported. As he wandered near the crypt, others report hearing the sounds of crying and footsteps near the site in 1874 upon completion of the memorial lincoln's remains were interned interred in a marble sarcophagus in the center of a chamber known as the catacombs or burial room in 1876 however after several chicago criminals broke into the tomb intending to kidnap the corpse and hold it for ransom however the attempt failed as one of the men in the gang was a spy for the Secret Service. There's your answer. I, I've heard a different version of this. There was an this. attempt, but they didn't succeed. But I think somebody was killed in the... Anyway. Over the, I gotta go back and re-research this, because, yeah, it makes me want to. You always forget more than you remember. Huh? Yeah. Yep. It's a curse of getting older. <laughs> True that. Who are you, by the way? I don't know. Who are you? I don't know. Please continue. <laughs> Over the over the years, legends have persisted as tourists and staff members report uncomfortable feelings, phantom footsteps, whispers, muffled voices, and weeping. Along with our former president, Oak Ridge Cemetery also reported that the apparitions of a small boy and a mysterious woman in a flowing red cape have been seen on the property. Okay. Lincoln has also been reported to have been seen walking the streets surrounding Springfield's original courthouse and the hallways of his former home. He started out as a lawyer, so 
Yep. Others have reported seeing the ghost of Mary Lincoln at their old home located at 413 South 8th Street. Having a long-standing reputation as being haunted, reports range from apparitions of a woman to toys moving of their own accord. Most people believe that Mary haunts the house, maintaining the National Park Service to Maintained by the National Park Service today, the staff denies any reports of paranormal activity. Of course they're going to. Today, the Lincoln Home is the centerpiece of the Lincoln Home National Historic Site. Restored to its 1860s appearance, it stands amid a four-block historic neighborhood that the National Park Service also restored. Nifty. Nifty. I wouldn't mind seeing all that. Mm -hmm. uh, the most interesting haunting surrounding Lincoln is the phantom funeral train. Yep, we talked about that We before. talked about this one already. Yep. Said to be seen during the month of April on the anniversary of Lincoln's death, the ghostly train is said to ride those very same tracks that bore his body to Springfield in 1865. Reports indicate that his ghostly funeral procession is two trains with the steam engine pulling several cars draped in black adorned with black streamers and playing mournful music. The second train is said to pull a flat car that carries Lincoln's coffin. Unfortunately, the train is said never to reach its final destination. Well, we know that it finally did anyway, because yeah, the yep. original train. Dana House, designed and constructed by renowned architect Frank Lloyd White, right, not White, sorry. In 1902, this house is reported to still play host to its original owner. Designed for Springfield socialite, Susan Lawrence Dana, she was said to have thrown lavish parties in her home and was a significant contributor and volunteer to charitable causes in the city. Shortly after the home was finished, several family deaths caused Dana to turn to metaphysical and mystical religious groups to, for comfort. Before long, she became one of the city's leaders in the spiritualist movement that swept across America around the turn of the century. <clears throat> Excuse me. Her parties took a different turn with her involvement in the movement, and soon her home became a spiritualist center where seances were common and large parties of occultists gathered. Finally, when a cousin who lived with her for many years died, Susan was left alone in her right-designed house. A short time later, about 1928, Susan moved to more modest, less costly quarters. Declared incompetent by the court in 1942, she was admitted to a local hospital and died in 1946. Her personal effects were inventoried. inventoried. Okay, my eyes are bad. In 1942, she died in 40. Okay, they took her effects from her in 42, an auction at a public sale in 43 before she even died. Okay, they had to have their money. I guess. Her Frank Lloyd Wright house was sold the following year. She's not even dead. They put her in a hospital and they sell off all her stuff. They take it from her and sell it. But she was dying and it was probably provisional to pay for her medical costs. Um, I don't know. They declared her incompetent and seized everything. Okay. Give me your money. Yeah. Sorry. Maintained today by the state of Illinois, management denies any paranormal activity. However... There have been dozens of reports by other staff and visitors of objects with, which move on their own accord and the sounds of unseen people speaking in different parts of the house. The Dana House is located at 301 East Lawrence in Springfield, Illinois. Illinois Executive Mansion, seven presidents. What? Oh, whoops. Hang on. It's always my section. This is 
that I'm reading. A little quick editing. There we go. Illinois Executive Mansion. Okay. It's, now, the next, it's the next. It was a run-on thing. I'm like, what the heck yeah, am I looking it's at? The next, it's the next spot in Springfield. I apologize. Sorry. My fault for bad editing. Seven presidents, including Lincoln, have been received there. Three levels are open to the public, including four formal parlors, a state dining room, a ballroom, four bedrooms, including the Lincoln bedroom, a library handcrafted from Native American black walnut. Ooh, pretty. That sounds, mm -hmm. I bet that's gorgeous. Built in 1855, this is the third oldest continuously occupied governor's mansion in the country. It has served as the official residence of Illinois' governors and their families since Governor Joel Matson first took residence over the years. The magnificent home has witnessed many of the major events in the state's history. None so trying, perhaps, as the Civil War. Yep. The Civil War affected the whole country. I don't care where you lived. It affected you in some way when, if you were in that era. you know. Well, there's a reason it's called a Civil War. War between the states, brother against brother, father and sons against each other. It's, it's, the, it was, it's, it's yeah. the country versus the country. Yeah, it's sad. Basically. Yes. Sorry. That's not what I meant. I just, it's it affected every, everybody in the country at the time. Yep. So anyway, please continue. Hi, sorry. I talked too much. <laughs> you know where you left off? Yes. Okay. During the Civil War, the mansion was called home to... Governor Richard Yates and his family. Today, a mansion plays host to Yates' wife, Catherine. Mrs. Yates allegedly makes her presence known in various ways, including tampering with electronics and smoke alarms. The upstairs bedroom where her portrait hangs is said to be the most active room in the house. On one, one occasion, Mrs. Yates was credited with trapping an Illinois state trooper in an elevator for four hours. Oh, that poor, poor person. I don't like being in elevators in good days. Uh, the Illinois Executive Mansion is open to the public during certain hours and days of the week. The mansion is located at 5th and Jackson. There's a whole section that's duplicated in there. Okay. The mansion is located at 5th and Jackson. Springfield Theater Center, built in 1951. The Springfield Theater Center hosted a performance hosted performances at 101 East Lawrence through 2004 when they relocated to Hooligan Center for the Arts in downtown. <laughs> Not Hooligan Center. Hoogland. Hoogland, yes. It's all right. Hoogland Center. I read that fast in my head. Not for the Arts in downtown Springfield. In addition to numerous wonderful performances throughout the years, the place is said to have been haunted for most of its existence. On May 13, 1955, an actor named Joe Neville left the theater after a dress rehearsal and committed suicide once he returned home. Apparently, during an audit at the company where he worked, it was found that substantial funds had been misappropriated and a fellow employee fingered Joe. Ted, who had been an eccentric and unfriendly fellow, he loved the theater and at the time he killed himself, he was scheduled to play his first lead role. After his death, the theater replaced him and the show continued but apparently that wasn't the end of Joe returning to the theater after his death his disposition was as nasty as ever almost immediately strange and inexplicable events began to occur while some of these seemingly harmless well seem some, bleh, well, some, of, these well, some are... of these are seemingly harmless such as lights turning on and off on their own doors opening by unseen hands and sev several who have reportedly seen Joe's filmy apparition. 
other antics of Joe's are downright dangerous. On one occasion, when two men were building a set, one of the men voiced his skepticism about the ghost. The next thing they knew, they saw the saw started up by itself and several sheets of plywood fell to the floor. An unseen hand seemingly pushed over a standing ladder. Tampering with stage sets is the most often occurrence. Other minor happenings occur, such as items moving on their own accord, missing costumes, and the per <coughs> permeating smell of noxema wafting through the air. Even though the cream was long ago banned in the theater, on one occasion a girl reported having her hand held by an invisible escort while crossing a room. The Springfield Theater con Center continues performances at its new home in the Hoogland Center for the Arts after leaving the building on East Lawrence. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. So, I don't... I... So he's a nasty prima donna, I guess, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm. The question is, did he kill himself or did somebody help him along? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Something we'll never answer. Nope. Anyway, let's move on to Joliet uh, in the Rialto Theater. The historic Rialto Theater in Joliet, Illinois, not only hosts hundreds of entertainment patrons, but also a couple of resident ghosts. The theater began its life as a vaudeville movie palace in 1926, when the six Rubens brothers performed the Royal Theater Company desired to build a palace for the people. Designed by the Rap and Rap architect firm of Chicago, the opulent theater reflecting Italian Renaissance, Greek, Roman, Byzantine, Rococo, Venetian and Baroque architecture. That's sounds, a lot in one place. Sounds busy. Yeah. Sorry. Make, that cost nearly $2 million to build. 1926. That's, that's a, a lot of money. money. That's yeah. a staggering amount of money for 1927. Yeah. So after two years of construction, the theater opened on May 24th, 1926. The day before its grand premiere, the Joliet Herald News described it. They said, when the doors of the new Rialto open tomorrow, Joliet will have one of the finest theaters in the United States. As experts say, there's nothing to compare with it in any city of similar size. It stands on even terms with the modern motion picture palaces of Chicago and New York. The Royal Theater Company leased the operation of the theater to Great States Theater Incorporated. However, the property itself remained under the control of the direction of the Rubens Brothers. On its opening night, theater goers paid 50 cents to see the silent movie Mademoiselle Modiste. As they entered, they were amazed as they viewed the inner lobby, styled after the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles, and the dome in the rotunda reminiscent of the Pantheon in Rome, with one of the largest hand-cut crystal chandeliers in the country. The arch between the Esplanade and Rotunda area was carefully copied from the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Throughout the theater were displayed numerous sculptures, art, elaborate drapes, and furnishings, and for its patrons' comfort, was fully air-conditioned. That's a rarity in that day and age. Yep. The theater opened in grand applause and for decades entertained the public with vaudeville and stage productions, musical and comedic entertainers, ballet and opera, and served as a movie house during the golden age of films. Over the years, it hosted such names as Andy Williams, Mitzi Gaynor, Red Skelton, Victor Borga, Liberace, and hundreds of others. Interestingly, the Rialto was also one of Al Capone's favorite haunts. 
However, time and weather took their toll on the Magnificent Theater, and by the mid-1970s, it was facing possible demolition. Thankfully, it was rescued by a grassroots campaign by the Rialto Square Arts Association, now called the Cultural Arts Council of the Joliet area. With the assistance of local business people, funds were sought from the city, state, and federal officials, and soon the Majestic Theater was undergoing restoration. Actual work began in April of 1980, and by the following year, <clears throat> the Palace for the People was restored to its former glory, reopening as the Performing Arts Center. Listed on the National Register of Historic Places and now considered one of the top 10 theaters in the country, the Rialto Square Theater continues to host plays, concerts, and other talent, as well as being called home to the Rialto School of the Arts and hosting numerous events and meetings. The Jewel and Joliet not only continues to host hundreds of customers, but it also is called home to a couple of resident ghosts. The most often spied is a nameless spectral woman who's thought to have been an actress who performed at the theater many years ago. She's described as being in her 20s, very pretty, sometimes surrounded by hazy light, and thought to have been a well-known performer of her time. She's been reported to have been seen floating around the theater by staff, customers, and workmen, becoming especially active during the period of time that it was close that it was closed to the public. Many believe that she so loved performing there that she just she's not ready to leave the world. She wants to stay and be part of the theater. Uh, two more spirits, one male and one female, are sometimes spied in the auditorium's balcony. According to the legend, the pair fell to their deaths from the balcony, and like others who have died in tragic events, they just won't move on. Others report including sudden periods of icy coldness, strange noises, objects that seemingly move with their own accord, and the feeling that they've been jabbed by an unseen finger. That's rude. Rude, but it seems pretty common. You keep hearing stories about things like that. <clears throat> but that's all I've got on the Rialto. Where's our next stop, dear? Um, Haunted Cigars and Stripes in Berwyn. Berwyn, okay. I don't know where that is. I've never even heard of Berwyn. No, but, but we're about to find out. This is actually a story that was written by Deborah L. Solomon, and you're going to tell it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. You look like Snively Whiplash when you do that. What, rubbing my hands, hands together? together and right, right by your face? No, yeah, my hands hurt. That's all. Yeah, I know. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Do you need gloves? No. Okay. Just checking. Cigars and Stripes, the hip lounge and comedy club on old Route 66 in Berwyn has plenty of atmosphere, most of which cannot be easily explained. <clears throat> Customers and paranormal researchers are saying it is a hot spot in more than one ways. More than one way. I can talk, really. In more, than, more ways than one. I can talk, really. Just keep going. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was more than weird. It was very weird, said Simone Tre Trevitus. Trevitus of Cicero. Trevitus. Trevitus of yes. Cicero, as she and her friend Bernice Jan. Bernice Jan tried to describe their astonishment when they saw the top of a martini shaker flip upside down and then roll across the bar at Cigars and Stripes. Sorry, folks. Words are hard at this time. Apparently, we're having both of us are having issues, not just me. Yeah. We're both having issues. It's Sorry, the, everybody. It's the late hour. Well, it's late for us. We're, yep. we're, we're old people that go to bed early. <laughs> that old. I'm just messing with you. 
We're in our demographic. Anyway, you've lost your place, haven't you? No. Okay, we'll keep going then. The top just lifted up on its own. We were shocked and jolted. We all looked at one another. It was very weird. Chicago-based Supernatural Occurrence Studios, SOS, Inc. Investigators have been recording the testimonials and first-hand accounts of unexplainable occurrences and sightings that patrons of the hip, eclectic lounge and comedy club have been experiencing. SOS Inc. theorist Dave Black says his said he sensed things as he took a walk around the basement and first floor of the lounge. There are... I've lost my place. There is. There is... Definitely something. There's definitely something going on in this building, he said. From what I hear, all of the testimonials, it's been manifesting itself in various ways. People have been hearing things, seeing things, and things have been moving. Oh, no. You know, the mic can hear you better when you don't turn away from it. I was turning away from stand up for my <laughs> All good? Um... Black said there are multiple testimonials of glasses falling off shelves, the phone lifting up by itself, bottles falling, and martini shakers just flipping in the air. All the people are watching this happen, said Black. Okay. Though he's somewhat skeptical about the paranormal happening, cigars and stripes owner Ronnie Verhel? 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 Whatever. <laughs> explained that when they were first renovating the 80-year-old building... Five years ago, his wife heard sounds like there were parties going on downstairs. When he would go downstairs to check, there was nothing there. Ron said that not long ago, he lost his large bundle of keys and searched high and low for them. A short time later, he heard a loud sound and the keys dropped out of nowhere in plain view of all the customers who were seated at the bar. Now, that's kind of creepy. Portal, portal from nowhere, right? Instead of a portal to nowhere, a portal from nowhere. It was an apartment. Yep. The key slammed off one of the corners and just flew down the bar. I grabbed them and people were saying, what was that all about? Where did those keys come from? Black said that while doing some of the research, he witnessed some unique experiences as well as very intense sensations in the basement. His own accounts include hearing someone walking down the stairs when no one was there and hearing noises and activity in the empty basement. Makes you wonder what, what the building was used for prior. I don't so. know. Okay. Just curiosity. I wonder if they have any historic uh, stuff about the building in here. Uh, SOS Inc. has been researching the paranormal since 1998. They've explored some well-known haunts such as Bachelor's Grove, the House of Blues, and the sites of some well-known murders. The ultimate goal is to collectively put together a story of what's taking place. We also want to make sure that every piece of information is backed by facts. There are a lot of testimonials for bartenders and customers. At least two out of every 15 regulars has experienced something, said Ron, who is also searching the building's history. At least five customers have been seen a shadowy figure walking down the hallway at the rear of the bar. One customer described seeing the shadowy figure scoot down the hall and around the corner. Ron invited spiritual advisor Lee Murphy to walk through the building to see if her insight validated the ongoing investigations of supernatural activity. After touring the main floor and the basement of Cigars and Stripes, Murphy confirmed the findings of the SOS Inc. group. Several spots were ch charged with energy, 
Her insight brought to life many stories of the past as well as many possible explanations of the haunting, haunting activity. Murphy's insight points to several sources of supernatural activity, including a former customer who fell dead in the business entryway nearly 30 years ago and who may still be walking in to enjoy the social atmosphere. A presence at the rear of the building is sensed to be an elderly woman who prayed and worried considerably about the well-being of family and friends. The large handcrafted bar, which was brought over from the former Stardust Lounge several blocks down from Cigars and Stripes, may be the source of a true love story playing out in some of the current playful events. Murphy said that the energies of the bar are especially intense in one location, which Ron shared was the place where Rose, the late former owner of the bar, had been remembered to sit. Rose and her husband Joe owned the Stardust Lounge and the and he built the handcrafted and, and handcrafted the bar, especially for her. Murphy said that Rose's presence is an exceptionally loving one. Well, that's not bad. That's that's yeah. It's sweet. It's kind of sweet. And why did that jump again? Because I made a jump. Ah, it's your fault. Yes. Shame on you. <laughs> As investigative results are gathered and more and more testimonials um unexplainable occurrences and sightings are being documented. The SOS Inc. group has agreed that the place is definitely haunted. I do believe that the location is haunted, said SOS Vice President William Wolf, who also with who along with this group made an overnight visit to the location. The group, which was founded in 1998, set up their equipment in various locations of the first floor and basement, especially in the areas that have been noted to have the most paranormal activity. <clears throat> After leading the leaving the location for several hours, the group returned to study the results of the camcorders, infrared cameras, and tapes. When the group played back the tape recording, definite sounds and voices could be heard. We heard knocking sounds, voices, whispering, and conversation. One voice sounded like it was saying, no, no, you can't. In a man's voice, there were some howling and screaming sounds in the background, too. We will definitely do some more audio recordings here, said SOS theorist field guide Dave Black, who added the extensive analysis will be performed on the EVP tapes. Electric voice phenomenon, for those who do not know, which I doubt most of our listeners do and if you're listening to a paranormal podcast, you probably already know what an yep. EVP is. I know, but you know what? I, there are people out there who don't know. Yep. Sophisticated energy readings showed that there were drastic temperature variations in some locations. We were getting reading of 30-degree temperature variances in the area known as the hot spot. Sorry. Cat was after the cord. I had to stop it. Keep going. I'm sorry. You startled me. Well, it wasn't a purpose. <laughs> the cat was doing the wrong I, thing. Stop. You never know with old buildings, and you suspect explanations such as drafts and such. They said, get over here. You have to check this out. They were feeling something. I went over there. And it was so intense that my eyes started watering, and I was having difficulty breathing. I had to put my hand on the stool to stay upright. We all felt it, said Black. Numerous Cigars and Stripes customers have reported seeing a shadowy figure in the hallway near the rear of the bar. Owner Ron said that most people describe it as an outline of a figure. People describe it as having no arms or legs, just a shape. 
They see it go around the corner, he said. SOS researchers and many of the customers report hearing footsteps on the stairs when no one is there. Sounds have been heard in the basement as well. Wolf said that the night they did their research, they heard sounds like beer cans being thrown around. Ron doesn't have beer cans in the lounge, only bottles. Wolf also thinks that the location was likely an Al Capone haunt. Based on the history of the place with people dying at the bar and the age of the building, it's a good possibility that Capone visited here often and or offered his protection for the business that they're that were here. It's a prime location for Capone tactics and Wolf. See? History. Yep. Lots of shady things happened in basements back in the day. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. With a long list, that's just speculation, but still. With a long list of stories, which include four deaths in the building, keys dropping out of nowhere, martini shaker tops flipping and rolling down the bar, phones falling. Phones falling off the hook and then ringing. I can't. I lost my place again. Light switches and spotlights turning on by falling themselves. Off, yeah, falling off the hook and then ringing. Light switches, spots turning, spotlights turning on by themselves and bottles and glasses toppling for no reason. The conclusions are clear that the place is... Special. <laughs> Spiritual advisor Lee Murphy agrees that the place has many stories to tell. She said that for the most part, the place has a very colorful energy. She walked through the basement, upstairs, gaming room, and bar area and told Ron some of the stories she picked up, which included the story of a former owner who prayed and worried about her family and friends. She said it is a good possibility that this former occupant who passes passed away on the premises still occupies the scene and even perhaps cares for the present owners and or customers in some way. It's kind of nice to hear actually. It's like having a guardian angel in your bar. Yeah. Yep. Weird, but yeah. Uh, Murphy feels that there is a special energy attached to the handcrafted bar, which comes from the former stardust. Didn't we do this already? No. No. Stardust. Stardust Lounge, located several blocks from the Stars and Stripes. Ron has always admired the bar, had always admired the bar, brought it into his establishment and set it in place carefully. Murphy said that she feels especially strong impression from the area that Rose, the former owner, used to sit most often. Ron said that the hot spot seems to be a favorite place for many customers. Murphy offered an explanation as to why that might be. According to Murphy, Rose's energy is clearly present I may even be working in a matchmaking kind of scenario. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I sense that Rose's relationship with her husband was very loving and special. She may be helping others and finding the same kind of relationship. She seems to be having a very good understanding about such things offered Murphy. This place is busy. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's been active since the 20s. This, this bar oh, yeah. Um, has been in operation since then. It's never closed down or anything. It's been constantly open. It's been renovated several times. This place? But it's been no, no, this running place, ever since. Has it always been a bar? It's always been a bar. Because the bar came from the Stardust Lounge. Are you saying they're both? Okay. Yeah. All right. It's always been an operation. All right. Along with being a spot where many like to gather, the hot spot was the place where two customers met and then married not too long ago, explained Ron. It's likely to be... a Great place to meet someone or even improve your existing relationship. The energy is really very special, said Murphy, as she sat in Rose's former seat. Ron said it's getting used to... Ron said he is getting used to the occurrences and it even feels like something is working on his behalf. That's kind of cool. 
a while back I was take, talking about getting out of the business. It seemed like it, like some of these things really started to happen. Then I get the definite impression that they want me to stay and are looking out for us in some way. The conclusion, yes, the bar is haunted. It probably has more activity than a lot of other places we've been to and documented. There are a lot of testimonials to a degree that I haven't experienced in most places we have been, said Black. Dave O.D. Black first sensed the strange goings on when he was at the lounge performing his stand-up act. After the show, the comedian paranormal investigator asked Ron if his place was haunted. Funny you should mention it, said Ron. <laughs> Spiritual advisor Lee Murphy has assisted police investigations and worked with clients across the U.S. for almost 25 years. She is semi-retired and lives in the western suburbs. Yeah, I, I, while you were talking, I actually looked up the uh, website for the Cigars and Stripes. Uh -huh. It's Cigars and Stripes Hammerhead Lounge currently in Berwyn. Uh, Ron Varel. Yes. I know how you kept avoiding the last name. Hey, I didn't want to butcher it. Well, I, I did yeah, it once. Well, the name starts with three consonants, you know. It's disturbing because <laughs> we're English speakers, and exactly. that doesn't happen in English speaking. V-R-H-E-L, Varel. It's more of a, isn't that more of like a Swedish or? I have no idea. Or, or Scandinavian thing? I don't know. Actually, no, it says here that, that the owner's name is Ronnie Lots currently. But yeah, the, the bar's been in operation ever since. So is since he not the, the original owner? I or he's don't, not the owner? I don't know. Maybe it was a mistake. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just telling you what the website says. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we are down to our final stop. Is this the last one? This is the last Wait, one. Wait, no. Not you. My phone did something stupid. Oh, it is the last stop. Yeah, it's the very last one. So right now we're going to head back to Springfield and go to the Haunted Inn at 835. Built in the early 1900s, the Inn at 835 in Springfield, Illinois. First housed luxury apartments the dream of Belle Miller, a turn-of-the-century businesswoman. It was designed during the arts and crafts movement by architect George Helmley. While still in her 20s, Belle Miller began a floral business in the early 1890s, catering to Springfield's high society. Before long, she expanded her small business into a number of greenhouses encompassing a city block. In December of 1909, her dream home was completed, including airy verandas, massive fireplaces, and exquisite oak detailing in a neighborhood once termed Aristocracy Hill. In no time, the dignified building attracted an array of aristocratic tenants who graced the luxury apartments over the years. In 1994, the building was completely renovated, and the apartments were converted into seven luxurious guest rooms, each offering private baths and amenities such as double jacuzzis and airy verandas. Sounds nice. Where is this? Illinois? Springfield, yep. Springfield. In 1995, the building was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. But according to the legend, Belle Miller became so fond of her dream home that she refuses to leave. From guests and staff come the stories of a warm, friendly voice that seemingly comes out of nowhere. On other occasions, a ghostly figure has been seen drifting through the doorways. One report included a book taken from a tightly packed shelf and placed in the middle of the room multiple times. On another occasion, when the wallpaper began to peel away from the wall, it was found to be perfectly repaired the next morning. 
Apparently, Miss Miller continues to care for her luxurious home. She also seems to have a penchant for candy as the sound of the lid from a crystal candy dish is often heard being removed and replaced when no one is around. Most often reported are the strange events occurring in the elevator. Guests often report that regardless of the button they push, they wind up on a different floor. Though the elevator has been serviced and inspected on multiple occasions for the reports that it is in perfect working order, the events continue to occur. In any event, Ms. Miller is seemingly a benign and friendly spirit at the end, which today provides every modern convenience without detracting from the sense of gracious luxury which Bell Miller created almost a century ago. Today, the historic inn provides a it provides gourmet breakfasts and evening wine and cheese in its luxurious surroundings. Meeting and banquet facilities are also located. They're also available. Sorry for up to 150 guests. Sounds like a really, really lavish place to stay. Yeah, and expensive. Yeah, well, no doubt. <laughs> And that concludes our tour of Ghostly Route 66. Are you done? Are you happy it's that we've made it to the end? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of am too. I'm sorry Tracy had to fly back home, but we wish her well. Hope she made it. Hope she made it back okay. Now we got to figure out how the heck we're, we're going to wig home. out our our listeners because yeah, don't don't. Again, listeners, we are not actually on this trip. This is a virtual tour of the route and the haunts along the way. So don't fret. We're okay. But how are we going to get back? Your imagination. I guess so. Okay, then. We'll just head for the world of make-believe and fly home. Sure, why not? <laughs> okay, thank you for your Mr. Rogers moment. <laughs> Anyway, I think we've uh, gotten as far as we're going to get tonight. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Sorry about all the foibles and mishaps today. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough, rough couple of days trying to get this all put together for this week. Yeah, yeah, we we had to split it. It actually almost didn't happen, and then we split it between two days. So, yep. <laughs> but we hope you enjoyed it. And continue to listen to us. Yes, don't let our don't let our little mistakes here and there. Uh, we're, we're learning push and getting away. better slowly. Yep. <laughs> In the meantime, folks, we hope you enjoyed it. As I said, stay spooky as always. Mm -hmm. And lastly, what are we going to do? We're going to cue the, the gremlin. gremlin. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. 
What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.